0: We're going to start our new series, as we mentioned, we called it Table Manners. We're going to be talking about the relevance of communion. That may not seem incredibly relevant at the moment, but I think by the time we get through these three weeks together, um, you're going to find it to be incredibly relevant for some very important reasons. Um, Some of you may have noticed, if you're a guest with us, you probably haven't noticed, but those who have journeyed with me for a good while now probably have noticed that I have intentionally gone long periods of time between having communion opportunities. I've done that on purpose. Uh, the reason I did that was I wanted to begin to break familiarity off of it and uh, upon us as a communion, uh, as, as a people. The communion service, break the familiarity off of the ritual part of it. Um, literally, I, I wrote down the word here, I wanted to starve presumption. I thought that was a pretty good analogy there. I I'll take credit for that. I wanted to starve presumption. And uh, if uh, you want to get some foundational concepts, last Wednesday I actually started teaching just a little bit, just some concepts to lay a little foundation. And again, you can get that if you're interested in it, free off the website. Um, but I want you to be spiritually hungry. I want you to be spiritually thirsty. God responds to hunger. God responds to those who are thirsty for his presence. And the table of the Lord represents an opportunity to be filled with his presence. And so we're going to spend three weeks on this. And uh, I put on the screen overhead just to let you know where we're going. Because I can't, I can't teach the whole thing. I can't dump the whole truck On one Sunday, we would be here till about 4 o'clock this afternoon. And I didn't see anybody raise their hand saying they wanted to hang with me till 4. So we're going to have to do this in three installments. And so you may not get the full revelation until next week or the following week. That's okay. We've been taking communion for centuries now and haven't had revelation on it. But we're going to do our best, at least in the group that I have some influence with, to begin to sow some revelation inside of you and hopefully in the days, weeks, months, years to come because we can't teach on communion every time we receive it. But hopefully in the years to come there'll be enough revelation that has gone out into the people that we will have leavened the congregation righteously. So that as others come and join us on the journey, they'll either be curious or they can they certainly could find ways and I, undoubtedly I'll come back to it on other occasions, but but we will have a deep respect And reverence for the table of the Lord in such a way that God can move on our lives in powerful ways. And so there are three things. I'm just going to give you the heads up. It was as if God just dropped this in my spirit. Today's message, I'm going to call it flippant participation. How the table is defiled. We got to we got to start talking about how it went awry. Next week we're going to talk about table revelation and how it is restored. And then three weeks, or excuse me, two weeks. Actually, the third Sunday will be the final message which is self-examination, and that is how the table is maintained. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you brought your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is probably the great communion passage. I know our Lord instituted it. I understand that He was the one that put it into motion. But believe it or not, it seems as if Paul had the greatest revelation, at least what was communicated to us, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we're going to work through... All these verses beginning at verse 17 to verse 34. We won't get to all these verses today. We'll only go through verse 22, but but it naturally breaks itself up into three different parts. So this is part one, as I mentioned. Paul's going to start talking to the Corinthian church about some problems that were happening around the communion table. And this is what we read, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 17. He writes, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized or may be known or easily seen among you. Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. Verse 22. What? Can you hear that? I wish the Bible was wired for sound. It says, what? Exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And we're going to stop there and talk about flippant participation. We've got to talk about first before we get to some powerful concepts in the next couple of weeks. Let's talk about how things have gone awry. The Lord actually downloaded some of these concepts to me several weeks ago When I was in California and I flew out and suffered for Jesus on the West Coast at Laguna Beach, Dana Point, California, on an all expense paid, they paid my airline ticket, they paid every expense, they put me in a five-star hotel, which, by the way, those hotel rooms cost $600 a night. I mean, this was uptown. This made me nervous. I mean, and I, I, you know, I've gone to some slanky places, but this one even made me nervous. I was nervous walking through the lobby, fearing I would do something wrong. I mean, it was one of those kinds of places. Beautiful. It they, they, they was it was an, a neat surrounding right there on a cliff, looking at the Pacific Ocean. Beautiful weather, seventy eight degrees, not a cloud in the sky. <sighs> Serving the Lord, I tell you, it can be, it can be challenging. But it was while I was there and, and, and just gratefully receiving all these fancy accommodations. Uh, they had wonderful food. I went to meetings from morning to night. But in the midst of all that, there were two formal banquets. There was a banquet that begun the week. And then there was a banquet that ended the week. And in order to be prepared, in fact, long before I ever got to California, they sent out a letter to all of the pastors. They sent a letter out to us instructing us what our attire should be at every banquet, every meeting, every event. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was just one word like business casual or resort casual. I mean, they had a page that defined what business casual meant. It defined what semi-formal meant. It, def, it defined all of these things. Now, when I got that letter and I read that, of course, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty sharp guy. I I catch on quick. And as I read that letter, it dawned on me probably the reason why they sent it out. It's because through the years of doing this, I suspect there were people who came to the event, not really knowing what they should be wearing or what they should be doing in order to come to these events. You know, we live in an era, don't we? Do we not in, in church life now? I, I mean, pastors wear all sorts of things to preach in anymore. I mean, I'm not saying you have to wear a tie. I'm not. Or you have to wear your coat. I'm not. I, you know, I know that some come in, in their their jeans and flip-flops. And that's cool if that's the culture that you're creating there. So there's no, no stones being thrown at that. I mean, thrown at that. There, there, there is a, a, a casualness that has come to church life here in the 21st century. But apparently, I could just see it, that somebody came to a formal banquet in a Hawaiian shirt, jeans, and flip-flops. I, I could see it happening. And so they sent this letter out because they wanted to be sure that the men and the women of God understood etiquette decorum this formal occasion that they would be in and so as I sat down it was the last banquet night it was the most formal banquet of everything we did (laughs) I I called it the last supper isn't that good (laughs) that's where I got revelation at. was the last supper at this big banquet meeting and I, I sat down at the table and all of a sudden I looked at how the table was set and i was scrambling in my mind concerning all my table manners cuz i mean there was a lineup of forks and silverware there were forks over my plate there were glasses and plates and this and that and napkins and you know it was one of those times where you know you'd sit down and you couldn't grab your napkin because the person would just grab it and then they and put it on your lap for you which is kind of weird too But I was scrambling in my mind. I mean, I was thinking to myself, what, which fork do you use first? Um, why is that fork over my plate? I'm just going to admit to you, I used the wrong fork at first. I didn't pick up on it until I was watching everyone else at the table. I believe, honey, it was the only mistake I made. Well, yeah, I know, I know. I forgot that the one over your plate is a dessert fork. Well, I grabbed the one over my plate because I figure you worked outward in some, you know, and I just, well, I found out that's not what I did. And so, so through the table conversations, I slowly moved this other fork <laughs> because you didn't want to be out of order. You know, you didn't want to look like this bumpkin that flew in from South Carolina. Didn't know how to eat dinner. All right. So I was thinking, I was remembering no elbows on the table, you know, don't lean on it. Don't use your finger to push the corn up on your fork. (laughs) Honey, I heard your words in my ears saying, don't slurp the soup, don't slurp the coffee. And it's hard not to slurp when it's hot. No more than three cuts on a steak. I remembered that from somewhere. You can't cut your food up more than three times before you start eating it. You can't, and it's not like you can cut your plate up. and then you, know, that's, that's, you do not do that at a formal banquet. And so I was doing all of this stuff and, and, and I was scrambling in my mind. And, and at that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And, and I'm not kidding you what the Holy Spirit said. He said, you have more concern about man's table than my table. Oh, my goodness. And at that moment, we were finishing up our banquet, and I was heading back to the room. And I mean, I got downloaded. I mean, there are moments, you know, you preach and you teach because that's what you do. And then there are moments the Holy Spirit starts downloading things into you. And I started writing, and I I just took an incredible amount of notes uh, concerning the table of the Lord. And it it just, well, it dawned on me because I got the heart of God at that moment that in the church... You see, we've lost our table manners. We've lost our table manners. That's exactly the problem that was happening at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth was really a miracle. It was planted in one of the most wicked cities imaginable. In fact, one historian stated that the city, in his words, had exceptional immorality. Now, I don't know what that means. But it tells me that there were some bad things that were happening in Corinth. I know just because of studies that they had uh, all sorts of uh, fertility cults, and so there would have been temple prostitution would have been a problem. Uh, We know that uh, being a port city as well, it would have had a highly uh, sexualized culture. One archaeologist I found out, and I don't know how this works, but the archaeologist said that within 100 feet, and I guess, it had to, I guess it was the depth of it uh, on a city street. It actually would go back. But within 100 feet, there were 33 separate taverns. Can you imagine? In 100 feet, there was problems in Corinth. As I mentioned, it was a port city, so you would have sailors contributing to the debauchery. Forgive me for all those of you that served in the Navy. You know how it works, though. When the Navy pulls in, it sometimes can get wild. Being a port city, it was also prosperous, though, because all the goods and services would come through Corinth. And and what was beginning to happen there was not only the, the immorality that existed, but there was this great divide that was taking place in the culture. There was this super rich category, and then there was the poor. There was really not much in between. And so there was this great economic chasm between the rich and the poor, and there was hostility that existed in the city for those very reasons. All of that began to spill over. The culture began to spill over into church life. The Corinthian church, while we will read in the book of Corinthians, many things that would label them incredibly powerful, full of the Holy Spirit, working in the gifts of the Spirit. Yes, they saw miracles. They saw incredible things God do. In spite of all of these things, they were also incredibly carnal, incredibly immature, and incredibly selfish. I can say this because I am a full gospel, charismatic pastor. I've been this since probably 86, got into it full force in 89. I can say it because I am one. That defines us in large part today. We want to talk about the gifts of the spirit. We want to talk about God moving, talk about God's presence. But at the same time, we're having trouble with character, holiness, maturity, These things should exist together. And I I believe uh, we're doing a good job, maybe not not perfect, but we're doing or at least trying to do a good job here in this local church. We value both. But at Corinth, everything had gone awry. So Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians to bring correction to the various messes that had been created. Now, I just want to say this because I thought it was interesting. Because, you know... I was taught that whenever you are supposed to bring correction to somebody, you ought to give three affirmations and one correction. Paul didn't know that, apparently. I mean, he, 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 he didn't know any of this stuff. He had, no, he had no training in how to bring correction. He says in verse 17, he says, In giving these instructions, I don't praise you. Now, I ain't giving you any affirmation on this one. Why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he give affirmation as you go through the book? There are all sorts of things. They have a sectarian spirit. They're dividing amongst themselves over teachers. There's lawsuits between believers, sexual perversions. They did not understand authority, they misused their gifts. He had to deal with the doctrine of the resurrection, the receiving of offerings. He said, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you except the house of Stephanus. And and he began to say, You've even messed up the baptism, you're messing up your Christian liberty. And now he gets to, in this chapter, the Lord's table. He says, and you're messing up the communion table too. And so so he writes this letter. And just think about this for a moment. How would you like one letter written to you, devoted to nothing except criticism? And you think you wanted Paul as your pastor. What were the issues? Well, they were so bad that Paul says, listen to this in verse 17, he says, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse, he says, when you gather good things aren't going on, it's actually deteriorating. The table of the Lord, apparently in the early church had developed into an all day love feast. So whenever they had communion, they literally had an all church dinner. Uh, We know that when Jesus instituted the communion supper, he did it at the Passover meal And so there was certainly a history and tradition even following the Lord that when they came and they celebrated communion together, uh, it was actually at a meal that all of them would be at. Now, there's nothing wrong with having an all-church dinner along with your communion, to have a love feast. In fact, numerous churches I know do those things. They have a church dinner as well as having their communion. So there's nothing wrong with that, except there were some problems that began to arise because of how this was working in the early church. Apparently, the rich could come early to the banquet, and in coming early, they brought their own food and they brought all their own stuff And uh, they just kind of made an all-day event of it. They just tailgated at the church. And, you know, they have this great big tailgate, you know, several hours before the service. They'd be tailgating there. And they'd bring all their own food. And they'd consume all their own food and drink all the stuff that they brought. And what happened was by the time the poor of the congregation arrived because they had to work all day. And so they couldn't get there when everyone else got there. There was no food from the rich folks that had come because they consumed it all on themselves already. The poor didn't have much to share. And so even the little bit that they would have brought wouldn't have been all that much. And and, and not only that, is that the rich, because they brought wine, would get drunk through the day at the love feast before they'd even go to the table of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I think being drunk at the table of the Lord would constitute something being out of order. I'm glad I heard a few rumbling amens there. So there is still a standard in the house of God. I'm I'm glad to know that. Now, there are three things that Paul zeroes in on. Three things, three issues. Number one, this is a problem. He says there are are divisions, there's disunity, and there's factions. Now, that wasn't everybody. You know, you can never make this general statement about churches. You can't say, well, everybody there is fill in the blank. You can never say that. Because it's never everybody. You may have met one or two, but it's probably not everybody. It's like when people say to me, everybody's saying, Pastor, well, who's everybody? Well, this person. Well, is that person everybody? Well, no. Well, then don't use everybody. You can't can't say everybody, but having said that, there was enough that was going on that it warranted a letter. And while Paul rebukes it, what he does is he tells the church that some of this is needed, he says here, In verse 19, some of this is needed in order that you may begin to see what's really going on in a person's heart. He says, factions among you, there must be, that those who are approved may be recognized. What that verse means is, is that every now and then, you need to just let everybody see how a person's acting. It takes really no correction, it takes no rebuke, it just, everybody just stop and look at this for a second, and and the fruit of their life is their own story, that's all you have to do. And that's what he says. The reason some of this is going on, it's because it's good for everybody to see. Sometimes it's just good to see a rebel. I don't know if you grew up, some of you may be the oldest of several brothers and sisters. Uh, some of the rest of you may be the younger brother or sister. Now, uh, I can tell you in our household, Tyler has often told me one of the benefits of being a younger brother to Clayton was he could watch what happened in Clayton's life And it helped him understand what he shouldn't do. Just by virtue of watching, he could see, well, note this one. I don't want to do that. Now, if you're the older brother, of course, it's all new to you. But for everyone else, they can watch. And when Clayton got a whooping, he's even told the story. He goes, I knew I I wasn't going to do that. You understand, that's how it works sometimes in church life. If we're discerning, you just watch what happens in people's lives. And, and some of us, as we watch, before you believe something that you don't know about, just watch what's happening. And oftentimes you'll say, hmm, I'm not sure I want to go down that road. So he says there will be division and disunity and factions. There ought not be. There ought to be a unity. But sometimes he says that's good so you can see what's in a person's heart. Secondly, he says there was Carnality and self-centeredness these were problems that were circulating around the table of the lord there was no sense of fellowship there was no sense of sharing there was no sense of preferring one another there was nobody was saving things for the poor congregants to come it had turned into this individualistic selfish fellowship the rich would bloat themselves on the food without a thought for a brother who was coming later it was all about them. They, they'd lost sight of the, of the greater church body. They didn't think about anyone else but themselves. Now, again, we do a pretty good job with this, but I always chuckle whenever we have an all-church dinner. It's always amazing to me how, especially in the early days, now we've kind of trained everybody to bring lots and lots of food and it's not even an issue. But in the early days, before uh, we were trained as a congregation and we'd have people bring food, it was amazing how we would look at the table and we knew that there might just be enough to serve everyone. But those first folk through the line, man, they were gonna, you know, they're, you know, without a thought of who was coming in the line behind them. I'm just sensitizing you to the fact that you've gotta, you've gotta prefer your brother. It just isn't about you getting your three pieces of chicken. You live off one, truth be told. And if you're like me, you probably only need one. But there's a sense of, preferring your brother, preferring someone else. And that was going on there. And literally they had nothing to bring. These people were coming in later in the day. They had nothing to bring. And then third, the third thing that was swirling around the table was familiarity and presumption. A sense of the holy had left this moment. They were getting drunk at the communion service. Now, I'll just say it again. You ought not get drunk. God says you ought not get drunk. And he says, if you practice getting drunk, you're putting yourself in a precarious position with the Lord. I'm not going to fuss with your doctrine at the moment. But I am going to fuss with the culture and say, we got to wake up to some things. And they just become so presumptuous. They live like they want. They did what they want. They were carnal and even sinful, and they just came on and just participated in the life of what was holy in the church. They'd lost all respect for the table, what it meant, what it provided, what it illustrated. It had turned into an opportunity to pate. They're coming to the table of the Lord, and they're coming still in deep, willful sin. Now, I want you to hear me now. Well, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Can I just quote that verse, Romans three twenty three, very slowly for you? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, does that mean you're currently in some form or fashion of sin? Probably, because we all, we all have sins of, of not just commission, but omission. I understand that any deviation from the will of God could be classified as sin. I get it. But we're talking about people that aren't just in ignorant, incidental uh, failures. We're talking about people who are in deep, willful, egregious transgressions. Who are coming to the table of the Lord, participating in the communion moment. And there's not an a, a, a ounce of conviction that's in the room. So Paul says, I'm going to put this in order. I'm going to write a letter, put it in order... And, uh, as we will learn in some later verses here in these next couple of weeks, he writes to them and he says, because this thing is defiled and because this thing is out of order, it is literally making the people, listen, you can read it. You can go on and read it. It's literally making the people sick. They're physically, their physical bodies are being diseased because they're mishandling what's going on at the table of the Lord. That's what he says. Not me. He said it. He says there are people who are weak. In other words, you're you're coming up, you're depressed, you're dysfunctional, you're discouraged, you're bound, you're demonized, and and you're weak, and and you're becoming weaker through it. And then finally, he says some sleep, which is the actual word that that, uh, people are dying. It's the sleep of death. Literally, because of what defilement was going around on the table, people were losing longevity of life. Now, if you listen to Wednesday night's message, you'll find in the scripture that when the glory of God comes, they literally cart people out. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira, they messed up an offering and they were carried out dead as a doornail. Now, the point I'm trying to make isn't just, you know, to frighten you, but the point I'm trying to make is this, that when the glory of God comes and we're out of order, we are literally doing harm to ourselves in what's taking place that was meant to bring blessing Listen, and we'll get to this point. Literally, if we get ourselves in order and we receive with humility the way it was designed to be received, listen to me, you could be healed this morning at the table of the Lord. Come on now, you could come with great discouragement, depression, you're dysfunctional, maybe you're just, you're, you, you got mind issues. Come on now, you could come to the table of the Lord this morning and you could be set free. And listen to me, who's to say that if we put it in order, we might might start adding some years to our life so we can preach the gospel longer? Because remember, I'm going to at least 90. I'd like some of you to be with me. I don't want to lose you any quicker than God's chosen time period, maybe decree. So, So that's why this is important. It's not just, come on, get... Get your life in order. It's not just that. It's not just snap two. It's, it's let's arise and we can tap into something supernatural here. But we can't do it unless we know what's gone wrong, right? So what does this mean for us? What does all of this mean for us? I was uh, reading on my homepage on my internet a couple weeks ago that there was an article... About another royal wedding. Now I know we had this royal wedding and I don't know all about it. I don't care much about it. But apparently there's this other royal wedding that was taking place in some other lesser known uh, country. And according to the article, the royal mom was upset with the new daughter in law. The new daughter in law apparently was a commoner that was marrying the royal prince or the royal son. But the royal mom was upset with her. And, and apparently some emails had leaked out that she had written to her daughter-in-law-to-be concerning her manners. Apparently being a commoner, she had no manners. And so these emails were leaked, which is, which is interesting because if you stop and think about it, how would those get leaked? Oh. Daughter-in-law, I guess, probably pushed the wrong button and sent it somewhere anyway. We'll just leave it at that. Don't ever email something you don't want the universe to see. It made the royal mom look really bad. I mean, the royal mom was taking a brutal beating over that. Now, all of that being said, that the royal mom was angry at the new commoner daughter-in-law. As I started to think about it, and maybe she didn't do it right. She probably didn't say it right. There was all sorts of things that weren't right. There is still a point, though, I would think you would agree, that you don't slurp your soup at the royal dinner. You don't go to the royal dinner, you know, dress like you're going to the beach, and, and you get your soup, you don't pick up your spoon, you pick up your bowl, and you go... Or once you're done eating your soup, you don't lick the bowl out, to get, your, get, get you every drop of the royal soup. Now, nah, you're all laughing because you know I'm talking truth here. You wouldn't go to a state dinner with the president. Listen, I, I didn't want to go to an ADF convention in the banquet and blow it. Because, because there's, there's decorum. And, 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 and apparently, you know, she was, she was sneaking into the royal pantry at night. And then the royal mom says, you don't do that at night. And, and apparently there were just these other things that were going on that may not be a big deal to, you know, us commoners, but it's a big deal to the Royal mom. So there is this decorum, there is this order that we know exists with that. In fact, the Royal mom apparently suggested in one of the emails that her daughter-in-law needs to go to finishing school, finishing school. say what's finishing school? Put that up there. It's a place where you go to learn manners. That's what a finishing school is. You go and you just learn, how do I function in these settings? How do I function? Back in those days, we would have called it as a gentleman or as a lady. In fact, 1 Corinthians, by the way, 13.5. Guys, did I put that up there? If you were to read 1 Corinthians 13.5, I've had people look at me before, especially when we touch on on occasion manners and just a general a, a, a general, uh decorum in church life because you know there's just a lot of people that they come to church and it, there's no decorum at all there's no boundaries they just they do as they please and and every now and then there's not a verse for everything that brings order to something but in first corinthians thirteen five, i i use this where it says love does not behave rudely if you say you love you're not rude and rude has a whole gamut of things that could fall under it and manners are in the bible because we're instructed not to be rude. Now, having said that, I just think that these next couple of weeks, I believe the church body is going to go to finishing school. You and I are going to, because we're gathering at the table of the Lord. He is a king. He is royalty. He's not just the dude upstairs. He's not just the big guy in the sky. I mean, this is God we're talking about. And while He is one who sticketh closer than a brother, He is one that is close to me, never leaves me or forsakes me. He is one that I can have a close, intimate relationship with. I believe all of those eminent aspects of the Lord. But we got to get back that when we're at the table, it's a transcendent God. In other words, awesome, big king. Don't mess with Him. That's, That's also an aspect of who God is. And so we're going to go to a finishing school. And I think, and and I've just been thinking about this. I've had a lot more time to think about this, obviously, than you have, because some of you are just hearing it now on the spot. But I started to think about our churches. And when I say our churches, I mean our kind of churches, because, you know, our kind of church, you know, we're pretty energetic when it comes to worship. And we shout and we, Dance and we lift our hands and we say, "Amen, and there's a rumble in the church, and these, all these things are perfectly in order, and they're great, and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, all the liberty that we have. But sometimes, I think in our churches, because of just the casualness that the atmosphere lends itself to, I think sometimes we have become mannerless and lost respect for the things of God. We truly have become consumers. And it has become way too familiar to us. And I think some of it is due to the repercussion of not teaching people sound doctrine. And uh, that's one of the things that I think is important. You need to know how to position yourself for blessing, not just for your sake, but for the kingdom's sake. And when we do that, God is able to move in amazing and powerful ways. And, And we cannot be flippant about the table of the Lord. Now, let me just give you several ways which the current church... I think, is flippant or overly familiar. Now, these are just some personal observations. You may agree or disagree, but I'm the one that's teaching at the moment, so I guess I win. Amen. Ways in which the church world may be flippant. Number one, meaningless ritual. Meaningless ritual. I remember years ago, attending in the summertime when I worked for my uncle on the farm, I would live with my grandparents and... My grandmother was indeed a godly woman, and, and she practiced her Christianity. And she went to a church. It was a non-Catholic church, by the way. But she went to a church that had some very rigid ideas about both baptism and communion. And they had communion at this church every single Sunday. Now, believe it or not, it was not an Anglican or an Episcopal church. It was, it was a, a definite, just Protestant, more or less relaxed church type atmosphere but communion was going to be served every single Sunday it's just it was on it was on the order form it was going to happen there was no way that wasn't going to happen now as i attended there through the summers and i was there many summers from the time i was 12 to the time i was 18 it didn't matter whether i was 12 or whether i was 18 i could almost quote the prayer the dude was going to pray over the communion table before the time you know it was released and people were served the prayers were predictable the participation was very ritualistic. Uh, there was no life to it. It was just something they did in the service, not any life to it. There wasn't any sense of the transcendent, any sense of the presence of God. There was little meaning. I used to call it speed eating because it just it just was amazing how fast they could do. It's done. I mean, it was just done. And you could see now, again, I'm just a teenager, but I could see easily how meaningless this whole part of service was to everyone. Now, listen, is that, does that mean everyone? Well, no, maybe not everyone because you can't paint with that kind of brush. But I could tell you there was a, a great number of people that they were out to lunch, literally, as they're going through the communion ritual. It was dead ritual. Now, I'm just going to share a couple of things. The Bible never says that you have to do this every Sunday. The Bible says this, that as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me now can I just share with you that some of the reason I think this gets familiar is because it's overdone there's no sense of 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 sanctity to it I'm not I'm not saying they're wrong people are wrong by doing it every Sunday and I'm not here to get into the theology of the Eucharist and the bread and the cup and all those kinds of things but for me, there's something to be said. You know, when you go to a royal banquet and you're going to it every week, probably the luster begins to wane. But if you go to a royal banquet uh, on occasion, then there's something that may happen that causes you to respect it even more. And so I, I, just, I just am of the mindset that while this is an important feature of the life of the church, it's never going to happen every single Sunday because it breeds ritualism and it breeds familiarity now you may disagree it may not do that to you but i'm telling you as pastor who looks at church life as a whole i see it on a fairly regular basis now again uh, you could even make a case biblically that the communion meal was served right around passover passover was only done once a year you could literally make a case that you only did it once a year now i don't know that that It's something you have to do either, but I'm just simply saying, biblically, you could make several cases, but the key to it all is it can never become meaningless ritual. This is something Jesus himself instituted. I'm going to get back to this in another message, but do you realize that when we come to this table, we are linking arms with the saints of the centuries. This is what links us to those early disciples that sat around that Passover table with the Lord when he broke bread and he lifted a cup. Do you understand? This is what links us historically in the church. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just weird. But something inside of me gets goosebumps when I think about that. That I'm literally participating in what Peter and James and John and Thomas and all the disciples participated in. We don't want it to be meaningless. Number two. Cultural participation. Cultural participation. How have we dealt with it flippantly? Well, as a kid, I don't know about you and how you grew up, but there were occasions that my folks, and they were Methodists, they were Protestant, but we had Catholic friends. And oftentimes, for various reasons, uh, various celebrations or ceremonies with, with with friends that we knew whose maybe children were going through, we would attend on occasion a Catholic church and we would go to that particular religious service that they were having. Now, this is what's interesting. We're talking about in the 60s now, 1960s. I'm I'm, going to be 52 this year. Yes, I know I don't look that old, but I am going to be that old. This is in the 60s. Listen to me. My folks, now they were Methodists. Now, again, and I I, I, I didn't think I really heard the gospel, and I could say a lot that uh, happened in the Methodist church I grew up in that was not good, but apparently somewhere... They were taught and it got into their mind and they in turn made it clear to me that when we go to this Catholic church, we do not kneel. We do not go through the motions. When communion happens, you're not to slip out and go down and take communion. We are Protestants. Thank you. Anybody else kind of grow up like that? I'm not picking on Catholics. I mean, but you, maybe you were, you were taught like that. I was taught like that. This is a Catholic church. We're here to honor our friends, but, but we ain't doing all that's happening here. Now, we don't believe personally here, and Protestants in general don't believe in a closed table. And what that means is we don't believe that that you keep people from going to the table of the Lord. In fact, Paul was very clear about sectarianism. He said that was one of the problems, was was sectarianism. So, So we don't practice a closed table. But the point was, and not to just do a pun, but when in Roman Catholicism, you don't always do what the Romans do. Why is that? It's because I wasn't trained. I don't know. There's, there's a different happening that's taking place there. There's different understandings that are taking place. Agree or disagree. There was, there was a sanctity that existed that, that was able to be applied so that even culturally, believing we were Christian, we still understood that there was something about that table that needed to be understood and that we, we could not participate in that. Now, today, people participate in communion because it's cultural. Now, there's no way you can police it. And again, he'll deal with these issues too, because I'm sure that question came up. How do you police this thing then? There's probably no real way you can do that. All you can do is teach it instead of police it. And in teaching it, what I'm saying to you is is that we've reached the place where we have communion... And, and you may not know God. You may not know Jesus. You may never have made a personal decision. You, you may have come in today and we, we're glad you're here. You may have made a decision for Jesus. I'm not here to judge in any way, shape, or form. But the problem is, is that because of the culture, we just think it's just what you do. There's no sense of, do I know what I'm doing? There's no sense of self-evaluation anymore. There's no sense of asking ourselves the question, am I right with God? Do I have clean hands and do I have a pure heart? You say to yourself, well, again, haven't we all sinned? Yeah, we've all sinned. And yes, he's given the blood to cleanse you. And if there's stuff you know that you've done that has not been brought before the Lord and you've not taken it to him, get your hands clean and your heart right before you come to the table of the Lord. There's no respect for the admonishments we are given to come to the table. And, and, and part of the admonishment is, is this is a believer's table. No, in fact, it's more than that. I believe it's an up-to-date believer's table. Now, now here's the good news. You can get up-to-date in about 30 seconds. You repent and get your heart right. And, and, and choose to live differently. And you're in, The grace of God is there to empower you to do that and to empower you to live it. It's not something you can muster up yourself or you have to live or perform a certain way for weeks or years or months. And we're not, we're not, God isn't going to make you perform 10 seconds for him because you couldn't perform good enough for him to be good enough. But the one thing he does expect is a broken and contrite heart who would say, Lord, I've sinned and I'm asking the blood to cleanse me and refresh me so I can go to the table with clean hands and a pure heart. We can't just do it because it's the, cultural thing to do. Number three kind of ties into it. This is another way in Corinth had gotten wrong, unrepentant attitudes. It's true. Again, I'll say it all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but there's a difference in my humble, repentant attitude. As I approach the table, there's a difference between that and a rebellious, unrepentant, I will live however way I choose to live. No one's going to tell me any different. And I'm still going to march my way down here. Now listen to me. I can't police that. Because I truly can't know a person's heart. I'm just a human being. But I'm going to declare this and teach this. That if you come down with a rebellious heart that says no one's telling me what to do i'm going to live any way i want i'm going to just develop my own doctrines and theology and god's cool with me in my sinful egregious lifestyle and i'm just going to do it and everyone else can hang it on their nose i may not get to stop you and no one else may ever know it but when you're sick and you're weak and you're dying before your time it will be its own testimony are you following me Say so you're trying to scare me yeah. A little. The fear of the Lord's a good thing. That's, that's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to be wise, get a little fear of the Lord in you. Amen. See, do you understand that in Corinth, listen to this, this is Corinth. This is, I'm not talking to you. I'm just telling you about Corinth. I hadn't, I hadn't really got beyond much of what was going on in Corinth. But do you understand that there in this church in Corinth, they were drunk And coming to the table of the Lord. And they didn't care. Now I realize it's hard to get drunk between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. I suppose some have probably done that. But can I just share with you? You get drunk the night before, something's wrong. you You get drunk a week before, something's wrong. They were covetous. They were idolaters. They were sexually immoral. Adulterers practicing homosexuals. That's the Bible. I'm not, it's not my opinion. That's what Paul said. They were all coming to the table of the Lord. They didn't care. They didn't even try to address it. No one's going to tell them what to do in Corinth. This is just what they were going to do. And even though They've been taught once, Paul says, I'm not going to praise you in this thing. I'm going I'm to try to bring order to this thing. Unrepentant attitudes. See, listen to me one more time. There is no way this can be policed. There's no way. I, I can never know. I'm not going to run after. In fact, I'm not going to run after people. But hear me now. Hear me when I say this. Just because a, a, a human being can't run after you, don't think that God won't run after you. I guarantee you, you'd much rather have me run after you. Amen. Amen. And then finally, I'll just put this out here. How are we doing? All right. Acquiescing to the immature, and I'm just about done, and we're going to come to the table. Now, this is interesting because, again, you heard me. I grew up in Methodism. And uh, you didn't take communion, and I don't know how they do it today, but in those days, you didn't take communion until you had gone through what they called confirmation classes. And a confirmation class, at least in Methodism, was when you, your faith was confirmed because your parents had made a covenantal commitment when you were probably baptized as an infant. Now, again, I'm not getting into the doctrines of all of this, but but a lot of us grew up in mainline churches. We may have been baptized as a baby. Uh, your parents made a covenantal commitment that you would be uh, led to the house of God and grow up in the house of God. And, and for some people, they say, I've been a Christian ever since I've known it, you know, or whatever they may say. But in Methodism, you would, when you reached the seventh grade, you would go to a confirmation class. And the theory was you would now make your personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And it was no longer living under the covenantal commitment of your family, but you're now making the personal commitment yourself. Now, I don't know about the other kids in that class. I never heard the gospel. I went through the class, but I was, I was not saved. That's me. I didn't get saved until I was about 18 years old, and God took me through my own personal confirmation class where he saved me in a two-nostril alert at, a, at an altar. But that's how you did it in those churches. Now, there are other churches that, you know, I think Catholics have what they call First Communion. And everybody does this. Lutherans have their way, and, and Presbyterians have their way. And and I can remember that for a lot of years, now think about this. I was in seventh grade before I went to confirmation class. I went through a lot of years where my parents, when it was time to receive communion, my parents, this is literally what would happen. They would look at me and they would say, you sit here. I I, I don't remember everything, but I was probably going, why can't I come? Why can't I come? No, you sit here. Why? Because it's not time for you to go to the table of the Lord. Now, they may have been dead Methodists, but you weren't going to violate the table. We don't do that in our circles. Now, I understand why we don't do that because we believe there's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My children, you know, a lot of my children were very, very young when they received Jesus and I believe they had a legitimate experience at a very, very early age. But listen to me, I'm just going to sensitize all of us to something right here because I have watched this now through the years. I have pastored since I was 24. For 27 years, I pastored in churches much like this. Watch this for years just an observation that parents in order to acquiesce to sometimes unruly kids, bring them to the table of the Lord. And they're going nutsoid because they see everyone else getting to grab their cracker and their little cup of juice. And what they do is, is they just give it to them at times. I think just to keep them quiet, or maybe they develop their own doctrine. I don't know. It's not snack time, mom and dad. Now, listen, can you police that? No, I can't police that. I don't don't even know how I'd do that because I know standing here to even suggest that to some parents personally would offend them to the max. So I tell you what, I won't police it. I'll just leave it in God's hands. Are you following me now? Personally, I think I understand why Catholics hold their kids back and Methodists hold their kids back and Presbyterians. I, I, I think I get why they do it. Now, I'm not doing that, but I think I get it. It's, it's because what they did was they tried to make something law because they could not uphold the integrity of the table, leaving it to the people. Now, now here's the problem. The law doesn't help anybody. But here's the deal. I've decided I'm not going to sheriff the law. I'm going to let the liberty of the Lord be its own happening in people's lives. If, if, if you decide to do it in a, in a state that you're, you're not right before God, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I mean, I care about you. I love you. I want the best for you. But hey, if you want to get sick, weak, and die before your time, there's nothing I can do to stop that. You following me? Okay, this is important. Now, the next couple of weeks, we get to talk about the restoration of the table, and that's going to be a whole lot, whole lot more exhortive. It's going to be cool because there's miracles that can happen here. Golly, I want that to happen so much. I want when communion is open and people come, who's to say they don't receive And at that moment? Headaches, gone. Joint pains, gone. Legs, legs that are broken are mended who's to say that blind eyes aren't opened deaf ears aren't opened because that's what Paul says can happen at the table of the lord and in the coming weeks and i've already mentioned this over and over we got two more weeks i can't get through it all right now you aren't going to stay till late this afternoon but i want you to remember that there were no denominations in in first century Christianity. We are an interdenominational church. I recognize the fact that I've got people with every background imaginable here. Some of you grew up in Presbyterian and Baptist circles, and so you were taught uh, more Calvinism. Others of you grew up in Anglicanism and Wesleyanism and Methodism, and you have more Arminian views in your system. I, I understand. I got it. We got people here from every conceivable background. We've got Catholics who grew up In a very uh, rigid liturgical system. And then, you know, we've got those of you that you've never known anything except wide open, you know, pedal to the metal charismatic existence. And you grew up, and the first thing you knew, you were running around a church with a screamer. You know, you were just. I got them on both sides. Pray for me. Paul had them on every side imaginable. He said, he goes, some of you following, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And then you had the ones that said, well, we just followed Jesus. I understand that's what we've got even today here. But the liberating answer in all of this, and and Jerry, maybe you have verse 29. I don't know if you've got that. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to what? not discerning the lord's body this was just it was like when i i read this because i was really just kind of going oh lord i want to put these things in order how are we going to do that and as it's, if it's the holy spirit just said listen just just let the table do its stuff now here's the good news we're going to go to the table of the lord right now this is what i want you to do right where we're seated before we stand before anybody moves Here's the opportunity, more revelation to come, but this is the moment I want you, if you want to come to the table of the Lord, if you desire that in your heart, if you, want, if you want a fellowship in his presence, yes, they're symbols, yes, they're elements, yes, they remind us of his broken body, his shed blood. But as we begin this journey, three weeks together, we're going to do this. This is your moment to say, Lord, I'm going to get myself in a state That I can know that I know. Have the assurance that I'm yours. Clean hands and a pure heart. Listen, you may have went out last night. It is highly possible that you yourself, I don't know, may have went out last night and got yourself stone blasted drunk. I'll say two things. Number one is you've sinned before God. But the good news is that right now, if you will allow the Holy Spirit to bring the spirit of conviction upon your heart, and that you will be honest before him and saying, Lord, that isn't leading me anywhere except death and destruction. You can become clean before the Lord. And he would invite you. He, he would have invited the thief on the cross the day. Listen to me. That day, Jesus hung on the cross and the thief that was beside him said, this man did nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you go into paradise. Can I just say this? As the Lord said, surely you'll be with me this day in paradise. There was a happening that took place at that moment that if the thief would have hopped down off that cross that day, he could have come to the table of the Lord. He might have had the worst track record imaginable. But listen, you can have the worst track record imaginable, but now you've got to present to the Lord the heart that he's looking for. It's a heart of repentance, a heart of submission, a heart that wants his lordship, a heart that wants every thing that he's got and i'm telling you at that moment something special can happen let's just pray for just a moment father i ask right now that you would send your holy spirit to this place i i probably bumbled around in this presentation lord but i believe your spirit can cover up what mistakes i made and you can illuminate the things that i may have forgotten and lord i'm praying right now there are people here i suspect That you're working on. You're drawing them to the table. They want to come to the table. Lord, let it be so this morning. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody looking around in this last moment. You may never have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Or you may be honest enough to say, I am not where I should be. And and I want to just get my life right before I come to his table. And sup with him. And, and I want to help lead you to that moment. And if that's you, you never made a commitment, or, you, or you, there's just some things you want to get right before the Lord, I'm going to lead us as a congregation in a prayer that you can link to. And we, can, we can put some things right before we open up the table. If that's you, just head bowed, eyes closed. Lift your hand to me just for a moment. We're going to get things right. I see your hand. I see hands. I see hands. I see hands. And yeah, I see hands see hands coming up, every head bowed, every, I just, I see hands. All right, let's all pray together right now, okay? And those of you that lifted your hand, all you have to do is now is link up your genuineness to this moment. You don't have to stay back in your seat. You can link a repentant heart to this prayer right now. You can come to your senses and uh, come and experience maybe a miracle moment. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would bless these people that raise their hands and Lord, I'm going to lead them in a prayer and I pray it wouldn't be a ritual for them, but I pray Lord that you would ignite it so that the divine life of Jesus himself might flow into their being. I want everybody in the room, everybody in the room to pray after me and say, dear Jesus, I come before you. I come before your table. Forgive me personally, personally, For any flippancy regarding your table. I repent from that. And I repent from sinful attitudes and actions that are alienating me from your best and the life of God. I'm making a choice as you're empowering me to live for you. Cleanse me now. With your blood. Forgive me for all of my sin. I confess with my mouth. That Jesus is Lord. I'm believing in my heart. You were raised from the dead. To raise me up. To raise me from this table. In newness of life. I really mean it. In Jesus name. Amen. I want everyone to stand.